Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. Consider for a moment that there is truth, there is relationship to truth, and then there is our relationship to our relationship to truth. That's our topic today, specifically looking at how our take on truth is developmentally configured related to soul age, that is, the number of incarnations an individual soul has had here. What you're going to learn you may not agree with, but you'll have to concede it certainly would explain a lot. I remind you, as always, please listen to these episodes from the very beginning and in order. Thanks so much for listening. And we are forward. Uh, welcome, Stace. Welcome, listeners. I'm so excited today to talk about um, what we're about to talk about. So previously on The Heart of Soul, you heard us talk about, actually, I was doing some of the editing. We talked about the limits, the limits of God, which was one of the titles I gave one of those podcasts, very provocative, The Limits of God. How dare you say that God <laughs> yes. has limits, Ooh. right? Who 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 is who is mankind to say there are limits yes. to God? You know? Yes, because heresy is really good marketing. So if you can oh. fit some heresy <laughs> into the title of something, it's ooh, that's provocative. <laughs> uh, so we talked about that God is uh, omnipresent, and we always have to say this slowly, but not omnipotent or omni. Uh, see, I can't even say it right. Omnipotent or omniscient. Omniscient, yeah. Yeah. And um, that got us in the direction of the nature of truth, which is uh, typically talked about as epistemology. But the epistemology learned in college, oh, I would speak for myself, the epistemology I learned in college uh, was so content-based. And that's a whole other rabbit hole. Maybe we'll even get to that today about how uh, when philosophy stopped being about how to live and instead a bunch of content to think about. <laughs> yes. When I studied philosophy in college, I was driven crazy by that, and I didn't even really know why I was so crazy about it. Um, yeah. So that's that's our intro for today. Where should we start? Well, it's interesting because we've been um, because identity offers such a pro provocative array of truth offerings, mm -hmm. not true truth absolutes. Um, it seems um, before we get into the esoterica of the East, um, when we're talking about the nature of identity, and um, now that we've touched uh, a little broad brush stuff with the um, uh, the topic of divinity, God, um, which of course in identity there is a self-aware God. It's not a identity identitylessness uh, doesn't, and it does. It's not um, witnesslessness. It's actually self-aware um, because um, we are, and we're uh, subversions of it in the tiniest way. And so, but it's also not a guy with a white beard. Oh, please no. <laughs> um, we'll get we'll get into that a little more today. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, the the point being here today, Joseph, I I think um, a, a little bit of um, discussion on the nature of truth and how. Our planet is currently in uh, in in gimbal lock, we could say, uh, uh, about um, uh, the nature of truth. 
Yeah. With the, with the divisions getting ever more edgy and dangerous, uh, people having no curiosity about their truths on either side of the political spectrum, uh, economic spectrum, um, the, everything in upheaval the way it is. The culture wars. Uh, and philosophers call wars. what we're in the post-truth era. Have you heard of that? I, I think you I, I, I have. Uh, it taught, that, for me, fits into post-post- um, philosophy you know uh, it's uh, <laughs> uh yeah and and that's because humankind's never sorted out uh in in from where i sit anyway really uh, talk deeply about the nature of truth there's there's truth then there's our relationship to truth and today we're actually going to go meta to that and talk about our relationship to our relationship to truth now, if that seems pretty stacked, um, it, it is. Uh, but we're, the, what we're going to talk about is looking at uh, how truth is developmentally um, uh, uh, configured, uh, depending mm -hmm. on something that only identity that I could find talks about, and that is measuring the effect of the number of incarnations human beings have on Earth. That the younger, the less the amount of incarnations has a certain amount of uh, a certain way of looking at their truths, uh, um, a little more, a little more uh, differently. And we've got four categories today to talk about: um, uh, least evolved, more semi-evolved, uh, more evolved, and cutting-edge evolved of our relationship to our relationship to truth. And I, I got to interrupt. I just want to tease out something you said a minute ago that um, the there's the truth, one's truth, one's relationship to their truth. And now mm -hmm. just to say that's a that's an evolution right there because people ha yeah. everybody has their truth. Mm -hmm. But not everybody can secondarily look back and see what their relationship is to their truth. That takes a, that, yes, absolutely. And then the third thing, being able to look at your relationship to truth and actually work on, adjust that, evaluate that, that's a third thing that even less people have. That's one in 10,000, it seems to me. I, I would say uh, philosophy and epistemology attempts to work that third meta layer, um, but but can't get can't help but get caught in its own web of developmentally affected way of offering their truths. Even their, their uh, relationship to truth stuff in philosophy tends to be pretty axiomatic uh, for most philosophers and without a lot of curiosity about it. Well, so, it's all in the mind. See, that's no, the really interesting yes. thing about identity is it, I mean, it, it is a philosophy, but not only a philosophy, right? Yes. And most philosophies are just a philosophy. They have no meta to their own paradigm. It's just this is the paradigm. And it's from, I mean, with some exceptions, but most philosophies, certainly when I think about like Renaissance philosophies, they're mentally constructed. And to get meta to something, you need something besides the mind to be meta to something, don't you? Well, uh, we, we would say that's de rigueur, um, uh -huh. but, but since most of humanity can't define very well uh, what aspect of consciousness is deeper and more meta than mind, uh, most of our, since Descartes, 
I, I think, therefore I am. We create castles in the sky and then live in those castles. Uh, in philosophy, that's what they do. And but but they say they do that. They you have to give uh, philosophy credit that way. But um, there is an identity uh, much deeper and more meta than the mind eye. And yeah. uh, because of that, uh, an identity's way of uh, looking at things, it gives a whole other um, perspective uh, and that third level of relationship to our relationship. Yeah, and it just makes me think of how originally, I mean, certainly in um, Greek times and Western philosophy, philosophy and mathematics were one thing. I don't sure. think it was separated until like, Two or three hundred BC or something, and um, but that was the origin. It was like so. If you can make a logical argument, the same way you would like prove that you know a triangle's degrees add up to one hundred and eighty or something. Uh, so like that was the origin, a, a mathematical, mental kind of model, rather than an intuitive, spiritual feeling model or a direct experience model. Because most of math, you don't really directly experience; you deduce. Yes. <laughs> and and um, and create experiments for and, and all of that. And so philosophy has this history of being rooted firmly in the mind. And yeah. philosophy as a whole has been dead ending for that reason, because the mind eye is not enough. At least in our opinion. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's, of course, we should say that after everything we say. Asterisk. Everything we say. Yes, yes exactly. So, you know, this is, if, if so far these first five or eight minutes uh, seem like, oh God, this is going to be one heavy, um, <laughs> over-intellectualized thing, I would just like to begin. Nobody's uh, ever uh, told me that, by the way. Oh, no, <laughs> of course not. No, of course not. Uh, but all of, in, in, in um, pursuant to your point you just made, Joseph, which was eloquent, oh, uh, um, all of identity's truths are felt experienceable truths, mm. not m mental truths that only require they don't contradict themselves. Mm -hmm. See, when, when you're only dealing with philosophy, you know, qua philosophy, uh, all, all a philosopher has to do is make sure that their, their, um, their assumptions don't um, uh, dissonate with their conclusions uh, using the modality, of course, of logic. Uh, so that's that's the first um, and, and uh, um, first prerequisite of a sober philosophy is that their assumptions don't dissonate with their um, their conclusions or their expressions. Uh, we have a whole other way of feeling our truths without making making them only universal truths to be tested, not not truths that are not only don't dissonate from assumption to. Uh, 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 expression, but are felt feelable in a deeper sense of an identity than our mental body. So this is where philosophy mm -hmm. and spirituality, this is a zone that's never been mapped very well, because we did not have a way to um, our, uh, uh, um, uh, standardize or Brent benchmark felt truth. Mm -hmm. a, a, a person um, who's institutionalized might be able to see purple elephants floating um, above people's heads. Um, that's their felt truth. Um, but that kind of felt truth that isn't logically deducible or presentable or visible to others um, has been uh, puts in a category of phantasmagoric. There's been no benchmark for the sobriety of felt truth. 
Yeah, I'm imagining a, a two-circle Venn diagram where one side is philosophy and the other is religion. And religion has felt truths, and they're usually belief-based. And yes. then philosophy has like coherent, logical pictures and arguments. And mm -hmm. there's usually very little overlap of those two. That would yes. be where coherent spirituality would be in the middle, maybe. Wow, nicely put. I, w I would not have thought of it that way, but that's exactly applicable to what we're trying to say here. Mm -hmm. So let's stop talking about what we're going to talk about. Uh, but I, I remember my, my, my first uh, uh, public speaking uh, teacher I had in uh, high school, actually, uh, said, say something, then repeat what you said uh, 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 again, and then say again uh, the third time, uh, repeat what you said. Mm -hmm. So you, say, you always say the same thing three times, mm -hmm. and that's what gets it across to the audience. So instead of talking about it, let's talk it at the moment. Mm -hmm. So we talked earlier um, about how soul age gives a much more pervasive and flexible way of looking at truth in our world than is currently now. If you have someone who believes in a God with a, a long beard, lives up in the sky, um, and you have uh, the, in a religionist, and you have an atheist, an empirical empiricist. Of course, the empiricist is going to go is going to look at their um, at that person and see another human being only. They're not going to see the soulful um, information about that person uh, because they've never been taught how to do that. So, if you equalize everyone, is all the same. There we're all humans, and we all have certain capacities. Of course, different. IQs and EQs and CQs, any other kind of cues. Um, but if you don't, if you're not able to see the soul, experience, taste, smell, um, feel the soul of a person, you can't tell how many incarnations they've had. And without that skill, you're going to you're going to be guilty of the worst kind of reductionism, mm. thinking that um, your particular point of view, like an empiric empirical atheist is superior to someone who believes in fairy tales uh, with God, gods and beards in the sky who's got pet favorites, um, um, as we said in an earlier podcast. Mm -hmm. So this, without that modality of being able to ascertain and ha have a felt truth about um, soul age, how many incarnations on earth, we don't have a way to benchmark and to unify all the different truths that we have as human beings much more um, so softly, much less judgmentally, uh, because just like exactly like how a seven-year-old's uh, tr uh, truth set is going to be much less sophisticated than a 27-year-old's truth set, it doesn't make, just because the 27-year-old's truth set is more sophisticated, more all-encompassing, taller and uh, uh, um, higher and deeper than the uh, seven-year-old, let's, let's say, doesn't make the seven-year-old's truth set uh, less valuable because it resonates with their developmental state in that moment. And we're, we're talking about meeting people where they are at the level of soul. 
Yes. And, you know, sort of somewhat tragically and ironically, even meeting people where they are at the level of mind or body is difficult enough. Like if you're a personal trainer or a you know math teacher, just meeting someone where they are in ways that are far more uh, easy to experience is, is quite difficult for most people. You know, I've been teaching for 20 years and I feel like I've just begun to learn how to meet people where they are on some, you know, what seemed like basic levels. So meeting people where they are at the level of soul soul, uh, that's obviously incredibly advanced. Well, um, or, uh, incredibly, uh, delusional. Uh, (laughs) Right. It's, it's one or the other. We're testing that out. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, so yeah, we don't meet people where they are in their opinions. Mm. We're meeting people where they are in their soul age is the most meta uh, uh, dynamical bandwidth that will predictably um, uh, give you ahead of time their relationship to their truth. Yeah, you know, it just made me think of I was doing a, a webcast just recently talking about hiring and um, the willingness to make people uncomfortable in hiring. And one of the people said, uh, um, well, is can you push people too far? Can you make them too uncomfortable in, in the interview so that they won't want to come back? And I swear I heard, I mean, it was kind of obvious to mentally unpack this, but I literally heard, I'm afraid to make people uncomfortable. Oh, mm-hmm. And I, I want to say like, that was, that's the difference between hearing the local personality talk yes. and hearing mm-hmm. the soul talk. The soul was sort of saying like, this guy here is afraid of making people uncomfortable, address that. And <laughs> And that's the difference between, you know, and I know you experience this, people will often ask questions and you can just get that that's not the question they're really asking because the soul is right there behind it asking for something else. Sometimes categorically opposite. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it becomes a relationality in this domain. If you're experiencing people's relative soul age, that is number of incarnations in earth and we we draw a line of about honor about 140,000 years in the last 140,000 years this being the third epic uh, um, uh, of our of consciousness exploration of our of our um, uh, bandwidth on this uh, shining blue planet so talking about that um, let's just sort of go through it here um, our first category, and um, this I think will show up uh, on, on our yeah video. when I in the video whenever we release this uh, it'll mm-hmm. it'll be shown there. Okay, so the first category is uh, and, f- and from the best way I can read it out, uh, the range of so- number of incarnations on the planet in the last hundred and forty thousand years is um, from the first one, uh, the people is, are, are, are coming, are, the souls are coming to the earth for the first time, this is their first lifetime, up to on or about 450 lifetimes. Um, uh, I, f- I forget now over 130, 440,000 years, how many, I think that's about 350 years between each. Uh, um, uh, if you um, divide it out equally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, let's start with people who are in their first to about their 150th lifetime. Well, first, I just have an immediate question. Have you ever met someone whose first lifetime this was, and what were they like? Uh, or first no, five? Um, uh, not, not in person, uh-huh. but if you look at um, uh, um, tribal collectivistic culture, 
you will see early souls um, uh-huh. learning how to be in human form and expression, which first needs the collective tribe, as it were, uh, as their um, their venue. That makes so, sense, like a big family that yes, you're always sure, inside sure. of. Yeah. Yeah, we could say that the benchmark um, rubric here is that the more um, incarnations you have on the earth, the more you um, uh, self-orient. You start out group-orienting for survival, but self-orientation requires uh, something else. requires not just survival, but the addition of strival to thrival. So... um, uh, early people who are born uh, for the first, the hundredth time or so will collectivize. They'll be born in countries where there are collective cultures. Uh, the, the Far East uh, uh, is the is the best. India, China, Japan, mm-hmm. Korea. Um, that whole East Asia, um, East Asian is has most of their cultures. They prioritize the collective, whether that's family or institutions. Far, the needs of those are far more important uh, than the needs of the individual. Communism. Yeah, and if you fail in your job, you've shamed your ancestors going back thousands of years, that kind of idea. Exactly right. So I've never uh, met one, met a human being in person who has uh, been their first to their five lifetimes to answer your question. Mm-hmm. Uh but um, I, I'm sure I run into them every day uh, on the street, uh, but would not um, at the moment, unless I had a conversation with them, pick that up. Although sometimes I do also. Yeah. So what is it? What's the person's, what's the truths, the relationship to the truths and the relationship to the relationship with the truths of someone with 100, one to 150 lifetimes? Uh, these are the least evolved, but that's not a criticism. Uh, because when you be when you set out as a child, uh, you're the least developed. Uh, there's no judgment of that. And I ask our audience uh, who's listening not to see that as any sort of elitist judgment. It's just the way it is. It's mm-hmm. there's a developmental arc to our consciousness maturation. That's all there is to it. So this is not saying from any high place or superior place. I learn as much from young souls uh, uh, today. More, I learn more from young souls today, the, the older I get, uh, mm. than, than, um, as much as they might learn from, from um, me. reminds me of uh, when I did Aikido, the, uh, my teacher said to a group of us black belts, said, watch the white belts very carefully. They make the same mistakes as you, but they don't cover them up as well. Oh, beautiful! Isn't that brilliant? Oh, really? I never that's forgot great. that. And it was oh, totally that's true. so that's so great. Anyway, when you're in your first 150, you're still work uh, lifetime here. You're still working out what survival means, and and survival dynamics require a really strong grip on truth. You can that's an intuitive. You can feel that. If I'm in a panic about surviving, my truths are going to save my life, or they're going to make me lose my life. You can't uh, hesitate so, about like we need to run from the saber tooth tiger. Exactly. Well, let's think about that. No, those they're dead. You know. <laughs> yes. Uh, to, to, we, we right. need to take this person's food and kill them. You know. It's just yes. All the exactly. way. Exactly. Exactly. So um, there's there's literally very little doubt or curiosity about in the relationship to one's truth, because you've got to learn truths and survive by them. So this is developmentally reasonable. Uh, so someone who's in their say hundredth lifetime and is uh, is an uh, LDS person, a Mormon uh, 
and uh, they're wearing their underwear as they're supposed to. And they, even though they don't do polygamy anymore, um, they've got this rigid set of rules um, spelled out by the blue plate, blue plate somewhere there in, uh, in Utah uh, that Joseph Smith brought back. I, I thought they still did polygamy. No, uh, no, no, that they outlaw that over a hundred years ago. There oh. are some outlaw sects. Oh, okay, who but do if, on, on the record, they don't do it. Okay. On, on the record, yes, but they almost never, uh, and it's illegal in a lot of states in this country, right. but it's almost not prosecutable. So, so um, what's going to happen is their truth is going to become absolute because your survival is dependent on it. Um, so, yes, we pr when we go out, when we go out to look. Um, uh, go out to look for food, we must be on guard for someone wanting to make food out of us. Um, so that's an absolute truth that if you don't follow that absolutely, you will not, uh, your first or second incarnation is not going to last very long. Mm -hmm. So these are all reasonable. So there's, there's, the truth is absolute in that case. And as we get going from one to a hundred lifetimes here, the best um, uh, examples of it are uh, religionists and collectivists, as we just mentioned a moment ago. Religions, uh, people in young um, incarnational age tend to gravitate to absolute-based religions. And virtually, as we've said in other podcasts, every axial age religion, I mean, everyone that's Every religion that's present today was incepted in the axial age. During and, a, uh, a survival part of our species, it was, you know, yeah. survival of the species was the main issue. And, and of course, that's a pre-psychological age, a pre-philosophical age, which is pre why... And pre-individualistic, too. Pre-individualistic. So um, that those religions have persisted through all this time, uh, through a philosophical and now a psychological age is astounding to a part of me. Um, it's astounding, but it's only, they're still populated because young souls are still coming to earth and that's fine. I, yeah. And I read recently in the United States, I think the first metric first number was after world war two, or maybe it was one, it was something like uh, 80 or so percent. I'm making this part up. It was something like 70 or 80% of people belong to a church, a mosque or a synagogue. And just in the last year that dipped below 50 to 47 or 48%. Uh, yeah. So it's, um, which is producing the, um, the lostness and the post-truth era where, where people are so disoriented because they don't have that uh, grip on some version of absolute truth anyway, because collectivistically, it, you know, an, an, a young incarnation is going to be so disoriented in reality, they need something really firm to grip on an absolute truth of some kind. It's, it's their ground. It's, it's, it's healthy for young soul-aged uh, souls here on the planet to um, adhere to absolute truth. Now, when their absolute truth says, well, if you don't agree with me, we're going to do genocide on you. Okay, I, I can diverge from there mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of resonating with them, but purely on a, on a, on a pure um, uh, acceptance, soulful basis, it's completely reasonable to be guided by absolute truth. And of course, absolute truth uh, in religionism requires a, some sort of scripture, some sort of revelational provided a benchmark from God somehow through their through his prophets and so those uh, that absolute truth is measured even though um, there's lots of discourse and arguing and uh, conjecture about what a, a biblical passage might mean 
it still comes from God. It didn't come from man because man is full of original sin. And That's why when you're arguing with scripture-based um, religionists, they have this a priori assumption that, of course, everything in the book is true, yeah. that they've already made, and that that can't be looked at with any kind of curiosity because their relationship to their relationship to the relationship to truth, sure, there's that door is closed. <laughs> yeah, completely, and, that, and that's that's reasonable. It's just mm-hmm. like um, a, 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 a seven year old being able to um, do a differential equation um, is, is just out of their reach at the moment. That's all okay. Yeah. But again, again, the issue is um, religionists and collectivists and their grip on truth as absolute cause most most of the uh, the suffering on the planet. Uh, because they are so insecure, but don't know they're insecure, that they have to enforce their beliefs systems, absolute belief systems, onto others. Oh, it's all wow! It's you're connecting so many cool dots here. Yeah. So not only do they they have to grip on absolute truth based in their own insecurity and fear, but then they have to they need other people because if other people don't believe them or shouldn't believe them, then it isn't absolute truth anymore. Because if it's their absolute truth, then everybody should subscribe to it. Otherwise, it threatens their sense of security. Identity would 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 take what you just say and taper it to a finer point right there and say that the degree you grip your truth is the degree you're insecure about it. But how most people look at it is you fight for what you believe, and that's proof of how con- how much conviction you have in what you believe. Right. That's the bromide. Sure, and identity would say, mm, you only have to fight for it if you're n- if you're not comfortable with it in a- in truth. Uh, oh. If you're not if you're not comfortable with it, you have to fight for it. So all the zealotry yeah. um, is all evidential of deep insecurity and doubt. Try try telling a, a born again um, Christian that the degree they believe in God. Uh, or, or scripture, let's say, um, is the degree of their doubt mm. in scripture. Um, you better be fleet of foot uh, um, <laughs> in, in such a case in a lot of states south of the Mason-Dixon line, yeah. uh, in the United States anyway. So mm. uh, same thing with collectivism. There has to be group, um, accepted group rules so that the survival of the group uh, supersedes the survival or the good or the need of the individual. A, mo- a Holy Mother Church in Catholicism, for example, um, not not, p- not pure, reasonable, open-hearted Catholicism, but Catholicism, where that degree of insecurity requires that um, uh, that you kill uh, anyone who disagrees with you. Uh, this is a, a very Christian historical narrative, not just uh, an Islamic one, as in more in the modern day. Right. Right. Uh, so, so the idea here is that uh, religionism and collectivism need these hard and fast rules to survive, uh, to keep the faith intact. You can't have doubt, as you said. But what happens here is to do that, you have to repress a good share of your consciousness reality. You've got to repress your terror, for example. If you if you uh, animals can smell fear, um, if you if you're fighting the clan uh, uh, in the in the set of caves uh, a half mile from your set of caves, um, if you let your fear get too big, uh, you will not be an effective warrior to uh, take over because they've got a better spot closer to the river, don't you know? Mm. So. 
so in this case, um, you've got to repress a good sh uh, slab of your consciousness bandwidth in order to survive. And again, it's all reasonable inside that worldview. Mm -hmm. They tend to, so they, repre they repress lots of bandwidths of consciousness. And they, what they have to do is most of their orientation is both set in beliefs. Uh, they think that, well, I, if, I, I, if I freeze in a moment and don't act and stab that um, with my spear, stab that lion coming at me, um, uh, I'm going to die. So they, that happens one time and then they form a belief. Okay, I, I can't freeze. Everything is belief-based, but even beliefs require experience first. Mm. But then they, the, for, the, what happens is the belief forms around the experience and is non-negotiable. Um, went in a survival mode, right? Uh, and if, if we're if we're um, looking at religionism, uh, ninety over ninety percent of the stated religions, even if they don't state this, only we know truth. Mm -hmm. uh, only our truth is real. Everyone else is an, is is everything else is apostasy and must be um, uh, a fought in the uh, worst and um, uh, condemned in the least. But a great example of the narrowness, though, of this in the modern day is that um, the very uh, uh, conservative Christians in this in this country um, uh, want to make uh, a theocracy out of American democracy, which is specifically against the Constitution that they are the most um, vociferous in defending. Um, the whole constitution was to outlaw theocracy. Um, know, yeah. we're, we're the first republic, France, of four or five years later, uh, or whatever, um, did, did their republic. Um, theocracy was the enemy. And yet Christians today, they condemned the caliphate in uh, Islam, in Islam. Right, yeah, that theocracy is not okay. Yeah, no. every time I hear, it's very often a president, but anyone in public office say the word God, I want to say, you're dismissed. Like, yes. you can't do that. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like, you can practice that religion privately, but what are you doing? You can't address the freaking nation and talk about and say, God bless at the end of it. Where, where's yeah. the church and state separation? Um, it, it's so pandemic, uh, 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 an error, uh, and so ignorant, ignorant to those who who vociferize it, <laughs> the loudest. Uh, it, it's really discouraging to see people embarrass themselves this way when they don't even know that they're embarrassed. And, and I say that with warmth and and sorrow. Um, it's embar I'm embarrassed for them. Uh, the loudest uh, MAGA uh, orientation in this country, anyway, are going dead against the constitution that they um that they espouse and the um the in god we trust i believe this is right i, I once looked up why is it saying god we trust on our currency because that's another church and state issue i think i brought up before i believe it, it it was um entered into the currency uh during mccarthyism in the 50s it was this like in group versus like those godless commies are over there and we're this group over here which is the same kind of in group out group uh, collectivism that we're talking about yes so collectivism and religionism uh, they need their recipes to mm. deal with reality they've got to follow their recipes and those recipes are non-negotiable um, these are the youngest souls on the planet and so while um, as we said in other contexts uh, a, a, a 10 year old can do as much damage with an uzi 
as a 35-year-old, just because they're youngest souls, we can embrace why they are as confused as they are, but we don't have to like it. And we do, and I, I, I would not walk the streets. Um, when I visited uh, Israel back in, I was back in Israel in 1997, and uh, my girlfriend and her girlfriend at the time, uh, we were jogging in uh, Jerusalem. And in the early morning, it was nine o'clock, um, but, my, but uh, my, my girlfriend and her girlfriend had shorts on, running shorts. And we were jogging in Jerusalem and we were screamed at and spit on oh my God. By, by the men. Uh, and the only reason I heard, learned later that they didn't physically uh, accost us was because they assumed um, that they, the two of them belonged to me. Um, <laughs> um, that that had they been jogging without a man, they would have been accosted, uh, oh. perhaps physically. So so I would not go jogging uh, in um, uh, Mecca in certain neighborhoods of Mecca if I were a woman in in running shorts. Um, you may have a whole soulful capacity of sorrow for young souls and how they live, but you're you're right not to you're right to be careful about how much you want to push that culture. If you choose to be in that culture, you better be clear about what happens when you when you cross a line. Yeah, you're not a victim, as we've not, no, no, no. But uh, after that point, of course, uh, they never went out jogging alone, and uh, we yeah. didn't we didn't do much uh, in that domain. So that's 100, 150 lifetimes. Ten, they need their recipes. They need their religions. They need their um, China uh, with, with, and Russia need their, um, their recipe for their autocratic communism, forms of communism. These are all collectivisms. Uh, uh, anyone who, any person who heads up uh, um, a, a nation based on a collectivistic worldview is a young soul, uh, technically. Um, we haven't talked about soul species yet, so that's another dimension to yeah. this. We're just talking about soul age. So the next level is um, 150, 250 lifetimes. Um, those souls are semi-evolved. They still don't have much doubt or curiosity about their truth, but they take the opposite. Um, they would say, as opposed to the least evolved, the uh, religionists and, and um, collectivists, only we know truth. Uh, they say um, we can never know truth. Uh, the next level evolution uh, goes to the opposite side, which often happens. Uh, uh, and as, you, as this. you can see that directly in Renaissance philosophy, which was yes. evolving as a response to um, the Catholic rule of Europe. It yes. uh, swung to the other side of like, well, if there is an objective reality, we as human beings can't know it. So yeah. there, so you can't tell us what reality is. It has a kind of teenage kind of feel to it. Uh, it's a Absol rebellious. Abs absolutely. The tip of the sphere, uh, the tip of the spear of uh, postmodern philosophy uh, really has gotten sophisticated along those lines. That mm -hmm. There is no truth that isn't um, uh, uh, um, frameable uh, by um, uh, different points of view. Uh, we'll get to that uh, in the next level. I, that makes me nauseated. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why it, that did not. That did not feel good in my gut when you said that. I don't really get why. Uh, let, let, let's Ew. talk about that for a moment. Yeah. Um, that uh, we can never know truth is actually a fairly sober way um, of looking at truth. Um, it's a for identity. It's the starting gate, not the ending gate. Right, um, it's when that's an end exactly. That's, where it's just like exactly. oh god. Right, that's probably why your 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 soul skin just 
curdled. That's exactly yeah. Soul skin crawl like ew. Like I need to take a shower when. Yeah. Yeah. And so only when it becomes an end that you then relate to absolutely. Um, the the best uh, examples of the semi-evolved are atheism and hedonism. Uh, there's there's no rule except um, first survive and then take what you want, uh, basically, in this orientation. Uh, that's an exaggeration. Uh, there's a lot of um, people who's, who live um, very kindly when but with the orientation that we can never know a truth. But I always ask when I've met a few of them in my lifetime, and I say, well, you can never know true your truth, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, too many, too complex. Uh, we all have our own versions of truth, and that's all there is to it. Well, how about um, uh, if we can never know truth, how about what would you say to your truth that we can never know truth? <laughs> Uh, which is inviting them to have a relationship to their relationship to truth, right? Uh-huh. Correct. And um, this befuddled the couple, I, two or three people I've, I've asked that gently, not, not elitistly mm-hmm. or, or, or different, you know, they just go, they go blank. Um, this is a domain that their consciousness bandwidth has not had enough incarnations yet. No judgment, just observation Yeah. Um, uh, uh, to be able to, um, to look at, they have no relationship to their relationship to truth. They, they, their relationship to truth is it's impossible to know it. That's their relationship. And they can't look at that. They can't step right. out of that and look at it. It's so interesting yeah. to run into those walls. It's like the structural, like the six-year-old can't bench press two hundred pounds. It's just not going to happen, you know. Yeah, that, that's right. And and let's let's put in a rubric here it's again, so our listeners. Um, you might some people might get backed up on how uh, cavalierly we're talking about um, uh, the younger soul's consciousness perspective. Is that for identity, um, we're, we're discerning here. Uh, the difference between discernment and judgment is when you, the nature of your discernment causes you to withdraw love and acceptance from that which you discern. That becomes judgment. But simple discernment is not judgment if there's a warm, open heart about it. We can discern that people of this semi-evolved state would claim that no one can ever know any truth and then try to live that atheistically or humanistically uh, or hedonistically. Um, we're just making a discernment here and, and granting them full reasonability for the way they view reality. That's that's there's no judgment in this only discernment trouble with that when there's a when there's solid discernments we want to go you're judging uh right now especially in the pc dominated world um uh and uh, i have to i have to watch what i say because i might offend your sensibilities um you have a everyone has a right to their opinions they do everybody has a right to feel any way they want to feel and that means me too. I have a right not to um, uh, respond or relate to. I have a right to dissonate with your opinion, and I, and if that affects you negatively, find a therapist. It means yeah. that you, if if you have trouble with my negative reaction to your opinion, 
you must be really in doubt about your opinion. Yeah, there's it connects to that I, first column. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you're really confident about your opinion, you don't care what if anyone ever disagrees with you. And if you hear if you're an LGBTQ person nowadays and someone says uh, to you, you have a right to call yourself a she, even though you still have a lingam and relate to that, I, I would say absolutely you do. Um, but don't be offended if I have trouble with that. Um, yeah. Uh, and if you have trouble with me having trouble with that, you don't really, you're not as confident as you are in your new gender identity. That's where the, the conflation of um, freedom to and freedom from maybe. Yeah. Oh, yes. You're uh -huh. free to do what you want to do, but you're not free from other people's opinion about it. No, that's right. And, and back to our religionists, you know, in theocracy, the freedom of religion means free, freedom from religion not just freedom to practice your religion, but it's freedom from religion. So as soon as a born againer um, tells me um, that or now they want to they want to withdraw Roe versus Wade, right? Um, I, uh, I'm sorry, that's theocracy getting into a republic's law. Yeah. And so the contradictions are too massive. They're as big as the as the Eiffel Tower or the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Um, and so I'm fr I'm free to have sorrow about it um, and discern that um, it's, it's, it's a very low CQ or consciousness quotient person early on in their, in their incarnations. And that's yeah. reasonable for them, but not reasonable to tell me yeah. I can't. Just the very idea that the way someone else is living is somehow messing with you. Yes. It's yeah. it goes right back to this least evolved column of like, well, it's because it's threatening your grip on absolute truth and your need to feel yes. secure in your beliefs because you can't tolerate anyone having different beliefs because of how insecure you are in your own. Exactly. It's so patently transparent to me. It's you're better at having compassion for it than than I am. Oh, I, believe me, I had to learn that <laughs> over a long lifetime. Uh, that's that's my own arc there. Um, so. Yeah, you know, and, and and I really want to make a meta note here that so that this isn't ca uh, castles in the sky over intellectualized. This is why I bring in everyday examples of this, mm -hmm. um, uh, and and a lot, and say, look, we're all in this together. Uh, there's too much white noise going on out there about um, their person's re uh, people's relationship to their truth. We need to cut down the volume and wait, 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 wait. What is our hearts? Uh, uh, um, someone, some pastor said the other day that uh, um, anyone who is gay deserves to have their, they should be shot in the back of their head and killed. Oh, man. Th this was in the news. And I want, I would like to go to that man, it was a man, I think, and say, would Jesus say that according yeah. to your religion? And I, and I guarantee what he would say is, well, I don't have to act like Jesus. He's God. I'm just a human, and this is reasonable for a human. Right. Then why do the bumper stickers say, what would Jesus do? I, that, that one makes me go crazy. You're supposed yeah. to aspire to be like him, but he's the son of God, so you can never really be like him. Well, which is it? <laughs> well, I can tell you the roots of this. I remember I remember past lives like most people remember high school uh, and grammar school, but I remember in early Christianity, um, this, got, this seed got planted where um, where there were certain early Christians that said, forgive like Jesus, and other early Christians that said, no, I'm a man of blood and, and, and desire and zealotry. Um, uh, if you try to forgive like Jesus, you're setting yourself up to be a God. You can't 
you can't apotheosis, use, right? Yeah, that's 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 arrogance. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and it's still persisting today in the example we just talked about. Mm. So we can never know truth. And and the the first category were the youngest souls. These are younger teen souls, 150 to 250 lifetimes that aspire to this relationship, to the relationship, to their truth. They they don't have much doubt or curiosity. Their truth is unknowable. They kind of express mostly as atheists and hedonists. They come. Well, oh, here's one they, quick question. When you say hedonism, is that just generally speaking, someone who's made their life about pursuing happiness? Is that enough to yes, qualify? Sure. Okay. Not not just physical hedonism, but yeah. but um, if you if happiness is your goal, identity offers that happiness as a goal of life is the most pervasive and most dangerous narcotic of humankind. Yeah. Um, and that instead of pursuing happiness, uh, we should be um uh, uh, chasing a realness, mm -hmm. not happiness. So yeah, hedonist uh, uh, is an emotional, you could say, or is an, is a, is an emotive uh, um, uh, hedonist um, because you want happiness. And again, what, but what have, we, what, what have we had as guiding paradigms for what happiness is? I mean, these are the most of the people on the planet, two thirds are less than 300 lifetimes here. Um, so we have a young, a young and a teenage planet, young teenage planet at the, at their, at their top end, the majority anyway. And since such populations make more babies than older souls do, where does that lead to where the world is going to? Yeah, that's pro a problem because the collectivists have the most children because it's in their collectivistic interest to do so. Yes. So, and there again, there's a deep underground cultural kind of insecurity. We got to make more babies to ensure our worldview survives. You see? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So next, Kede, we're halfway through. Um, next is more evolved. These are people in their 250 to 350th lifetime. Now they're starting. They've learned. They've been around the block enough where there's they have some some doubt and curiosity to their um, truths. Here is where their truth isn't absolute or unknowable, and now it's more relativistic. Okay, we can know truth, but it's going to be relative to the situation. Um, I remember when, as a young man, Rashomon uh, was was put out in the West, sure. uh, and that lovely what this was the beautiful forerunner for everyone's got their own angle on truth, and and who knows what the reality is when you've got five or eight, I think it was eight or nine different uh, points of view in Rashomon. Um, this is a good, a good uh, metaphor for this. Every truth has a relative value to it. Uh, um, stealing a loaf of bread um, uh, uh, for to eat yourself is a different relativistically motive than stealing a, a loaf of bread, for example, to feed your child. Um, that's the most simplistic uh, example of a relativistic truth. Self-defense, uh, killing someone in self-defense uh, is a reasonable truth relative to uh, murdering someone with premeditated intent. So um, these are all truths are relative to the situation. Um, you could say that um, in there, instead of saying only we know truth or we can never know truth, folks in this, uh, in this category, Truth is always um, circumstantiated. Circumstance uh, determines the viability of our truth. Uh, if uh, if I if someone points a gun at me and shoots me, and then someone says and says you just shot Stace, and he says I didn't shoot Stace. 
Um, I didn't shoot Stace. Uh, I, from my point of view, um, uh, uh, the devil made me do it. I didn't do it, <laughs> for example, yeah. uh, to make the point here, the extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get much credibility when you deny reality. Um, but what happens in this dynamic, most of the people here are, are secularists, humanists, or agnostics. Agnosticism is developmentally um, a further, a more mature uh, picture than uh, atheism. Agnostics say, I don't know, but maybe on just to sort of be on the safe side, I should maybe do a little bit of church or something. You know, I don't. But they're not actively not, testing. That's not no, how we're no. defining agnosticism. They're, they're, no, it's, yeah. No. Agnosticism is, I don't know, it could be, but um, you'll need to, I'll need to think about it more or get some more evidence. They, because if they were like, actively testing, they'd be some kind of, I mean, they'd automatically be a spiritual seeker in some paradigm, right? They wouldn't be agnostic anymore, really. Exactly right. And as, as Albert uh, E. said, you know, no one knows enough to be an atheist. Um, mm. um, but I would say to Albert, I love what well, I love. He's a philosopher and a scientist. Not many yeah. of those. Wow. Um, uh, uh, I would say, well, no one knows enough to be a theist either. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you got to, you got to, you've got to do both sides of that equation to be, uh, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, uh, this more evolved population on the planet, they tend, they don't tend to repress reality or compress reality. Oh, we didn't talk about compressing reality. Yet in the, in the semi-evolved, they have to compress reality uh, uh, because they don't allow themselves to know any truths. It's so not a total to- denial like represses. It's, right, it's, it's a gentler compress. repression. It's just squeezed. <laughs> exactly. It's like an MP3 file. It's, <laughs> there it's, you go. You could still yeah, listen to it, but it's not as good as the, the, the full file. Right. It's, it's squeezable, uh, mm-hmm. let's say. Uh, but uh, more evolved folks, um, they they profess reality. They 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 take a position about reality uh, along the lines of the, the the skeleton of truth. Philosophically, is the ske- truth is the skeleton of philosophy. Um, they they will profess reality that um, that uh, inflexible positions. Um, not it's not belief based anymore. They have flexible positionality. And this is where academia lives, especially with philosophy, yes. like we talked about. Where and that Absolutely. this is exactly I loved because you you edited this recently to professors' reality. And I was I wanted to jump up and down. I love that um, that word, especially because yeah. professor is yes. uh, is right there. <laughs> it's just sort of like, well, there's this and this, and you can think about it this way. Yeah, but how do you how are you living? How are you actually yeah. living? which leads to express in the next column. But exactly. um, that's what drove me crazy about academic philosophy. It wasn't about living. It wasn't about expressing. It, it was just professing, pontificating on top on a position, you know, at a cocktail party. And that was just deeply unsatisfying for me. And I didn't know why, because I thought philosophy was really interesting, but not yeah. the way they were doing it. No, if it, if, if the rubber doesn't meet the road, um, philosophy is phantasmagoric uh, uh, mind masturbation, and it doesn't it doesn't ever come to real life applications. But but so. did, and this is a question I've had, and uh, I, 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 yeah, maybe you can answer this. Did philosophers like um, Nietzsche and Kant and Descartes did they try to live according to what they thought about reality? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, um, I wasn't in any of their lifetimes, um, uh-huh. so I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you firsthand, but um, what they would call living their philosophy is not what I would call 
living oh, there. Oh, because it was already in the mind, so yeah. it can't right. be to live it would have to put it pull it out of the mind. Living it was well, just the, thinking about it a lot, right? Right. The, the, it's it, it's position based. Uh -huh. So you you could say you could say that um, each of them lived it to the degree they held to their position guns. Um, oh God! No, wow. No matter never, what, see. Yeah, that that answers a question I've had for years. How so? Because, well, I don't. Yeah, it just never that answer never occurred to me because it was like, well, you know, was like Nietzsche trying to live his will to power? You know, was he trying to become an Uberman? Mm -hmm. Like, and how did he do that? Because, like, you know, the the Nazis are famous for having been somewhat inspired by and, and Richard, Richard yes. Wagner and stuff like. Uh, sure. You know, they were trying to put it into practice. Yes, uh, they were. But but were other was was Friedrich Nietzsche do trying to do the same thing? And it seems like probably not. He was the guy who went crazy later in his life, didn't he? Um, a, a lot of them do. Um, yeah, because you literally have to sell out your soul to make a god out of your mind. Um, oh yeah, you literally have to sell out your soul, and when you do that, your mind is going to short circuit. At in certain sen uh, sensitive individuals, um, it'll just short circuit it. Uh, you, you'll realize that the maps that you made in your mind don't correspond to the contours of the lived earth. Mm -hmm. um, and so when the maps begin to fail, you can live in the map, map world the rest of your life if you like. Um, but one day, one lifetime, those maps have to be burned. And you can see that like in the interviews with Ayn Rand, for example, who was a brilliant sure. philosopher, but she was so in her mind yeah. Um, it was like she spoke like a robot, like an automaton. Yeah. Um, I, I always um, made the observation with Ayn uh, that uh, the degree you could tell um, uh, how, what a slave she was to her mind was the same degree she was slave to her cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, she, she actually mm. even... Listen, this is this is more than just a, 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 a pejorative conjecture. Mm. Uh, she said she actually made the point in one of her novels. I forget which one. I think I think uh, the one with Howard Rourke, where uh, Fountainhead. Made, Fountainhead that she made the metaphor that the that when they when you take a suck on uh, um, uh, a cancer stick, that uh, the uh, the glow the embers glow and that glow corresponds to the idea in your mind. <laughs> This is this is a metaphor she used in her books, and I was a I was a very ardent um, uh, objectivist for a while until I hit a massive dead end, and boy, I got a concussion. My my, my mental body got a concussion when I hit that dead end. Well, that you know, to her credit, like the philosophy is so beautifully rigorous, one yeah. of the most rigorous I can think of. It's yes. uh, you can very efficiently dead end it, and that's how it should be. It's easy to follow, yeah. unlike Judaism, where I don't know what the hell that. Does does the, uh, the which I have a little bit of a bone to pick with being raised that way, but it's like, okay, what are the freaking rules? I mean, I once went to a, um, a see a Talmudic uh, scholar speak, and I was really hungry, having been raised in a very lazy Judaism. I was like, okay, what are the metaphysics of Judaism? Judaism laying on me, and he was presenting different sort of puzzles and you know sort of uh, things to talk about. And I'm like, okay, well, what what would you do? And like, well, it's an interesting question. You can consider it this way and also that way. I'm like, yeah, but what is your truth? What would you do? Well, it's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? I couldn't get him to take a position. 
Well, he must not have been a, a, a conservative. Uh, no, no, no. So, yeah, they, they would have a- direct answers for you. Uh, go to Williamsburg um, in uh, New York area there. You'll get you'll get an answer to that question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let, let's get to the point here is that these are um, 250 to 350 lifetimes in this category of more evolved. These are older teen souls. Ten, they tend to be scientists and teachers and academics, like you say. Professors, yeah. Professing reality, yeah. and uh, the way they they translate it to life is that they they live their positions. Um, they uh, they hold them in their hand, but they don't grip them all the way as a fist. Um, a closed hand is a fist, and when you grip absolute truth, this is why there's so much genocide and havoc in uh, in, in in axial age religionism. Is uh, their absolute truthism requires it. So these are older teen souls, and they haven't gotten to the God thing yet. They've been rejecting, as and as we said in an earlier podcast, I think the one before last, uh, is that to be an atheist, you have to um, completely take religions at face value, that they actually speak for God. This is what's astounding to me. How could you possibly take seriously an axial age, pre-psychological, pre-philosophical um, worldview, how could you possibly take it seriously enough to, to say there is can be no God because the God that's represented in these religions is so phantasmagoric? Yeah, it's not very what? logical for the professor class, is it? Yeah. yeah. What? Wait, why are you why are you taking it so seriously that you have to reject it altogether? You have to take something very seriously to reject it outright. It's like rejecting dessert because you had a crappy birthday cake bought at a (laughs) shitty grocery store. Oh, that's just crap, all of it. Yeah. So these are older teen souls. Now, uh, the further we go along here, we go to our last category now, the oldest souls on the planet, 350 to 450 lifetimes. Um, And those folks, um, I I, I I would never say most evolved. I would say cutting edge evolved Mm. um in other words what's the cutting edge of psycho philosophical spirituality what's the cutting edge what's the what's the cutting edge evolved here we're looking at a very small percentage of the people Yeah, because three thousand years ago the cutting edge was very collectivistic so it depends on where we are absolutely a cutting edge is is does has not some doubt and some curiosity, constant doubt and constant curiosity. Everything is a question. You live into questions. Uh, Older souls, again, the smallest percentage on the planet at the moment, um, uh, older souls live into questions and see what answers don't come out of the mind, but come out of the heart of soul. Uh, They've learned in some ways, uh, catch as catch can, or in spite of, new age or some of the others uh, attempts to hybridize philosophy and religion into a new kind of spirituality new age now age whatever you'd like to call it Um, they've gotten some to a point where they won't say they don't believe in any absolute truth and they don't they don't um, have positions so much as they they would just say truth is universal there are there there are universal truths that may apply to all of us no matter what um, category of CQ or consciousness quotient we may have. Consciousness quotient is a function of soul age and conditioning um, uh, in, in identity's picture. So uh, uh, identity falls into this cutting edge because it's 
it's heresy to the other uh, categories. Uh, that's cutting edge. Um, I'm happy to take that on. Um, identity uh, and, and the philosophical category uh, it, I would call identity falls into is a new one called emotivism, um, where uh, we feel, therefore we are, uh, which B'nai Brown now says, uh, but doesn't have a dharma, of course. It's just a headline. It's good headline. B'nai Brown is saying we feel, therefore we are? Uh, without oh. those words, that's, we're, oh. we're emo emotional beings um, at core, is what oh, she okay. started to yeah. say. She's got a great headline, just no way. And then she's got a ton, ton of positions. She's a researcher, a scientist. I was going to say, she's a professor, yeah. Yeah. She belongs to the more evolved category, but at least she's getting that headline. Mm -hmm. And there is some, there's a, there's a man in France, I, I can't, I haven't been able to find him in the last bunch of years, but he, he actually wrote a treatise or a book. I, I couldn't ever find it. I feel, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. I don't know who he is, but there was no, I knew enough where there was no Dharma associated, how to actually test that truth that we are a motive first as identity offers right um so we don't uh in cutting cutting edge of evolve we don't it's not it's not um we don't repress reality we don't compress reality and we don't profess reality we express reality we we our our emotivity is patent to our everyday life that's where our rubber meets the road um i i feel this i feel that there's a way to have feeling truth without it being me, 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 as, as in narcissism. Uh, 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 DT would not qualify uh, for a, um, uh, an ex expressor of reality. DT Suzuki? Uh, no, no. What the, current, uh, the current orange man. Oh, Donald uh, Trump. Yeah, uh, he, he he he. His narcissism goes oh. way beyond. Uh, it's it's psychotic. He's psych psychotic, obviously. Well, that's the distinction between passing moods and feelings and core emotivity. It's we're not talking it's, about whatever you feel like, but whatever right. you deeply feel. Which is the topic of another whole. Yes, we'll podcast. get to that. Mm -hmm. Right. At any rate, uh, we're, we don't. This not, there's no beliefs in identity uh, in a, in a in a cutting edge evolved. We don't believe in belief. No, we don't believe in belief, and we would so we would agree with Bruder um, um, uh, Meister Eckhart oh. that uh, that uh, belief gets in the way of actually experiencing God. You, you've got to lose all belief to ever experience the living divinity within which we begin every moment, transact every moment, and end in every moment. Um, in that sense, we uh, it's, it's it would never say only we know truth. Uh, we never say we can never know any truth. And we don't say truth is always circumstantial. Uh, we, we would say there are soul, solid soul bases for truth, um, but it's only viable if it's testable through people who are willing to be constant, constantly curious about every position they have. This is cutting edge philosophical orientation. These are elder souls, and again, 350 to 450 lifetimes. And what's, what's very difficult about the presentation of identity in the world is um, because moral relativism under the more evolved column is yes. the generally regarded as the cutting edge, right. when you present soul-level universal truth assertions, they mm -hmm. think it's the less evolved absolute truth stuff. Yes. <laughs> that I admit may, me, that I, makes me crazy. It must make you ten times that. <laughs> uh, I, I I've said this many times in my long 
crazy career as a whatever. Um, I, I manage insanity every mm-hmm. single day. I manage, I feel it every single day. Mm-hmm. If you imagine be able to look at a person or a population and see the nature of their soul, how many souls, I can usually read how many lifetimes a person has had. And then I can basically predict um, if going in either door, I get the number of lifetimes, or if I hear Sarah Palin talk, um, I immediately can tell um, how young a soul she is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, we don't hold our truths absolutely. Um, and only someone who still does would project that on us. And that's whenever someone says, oh, you're judgmental and elitist. Um, I'm sorry, could that possibly be a lens that you're, you're experiencing us through? Your own pedanticism is being projected. We literally live the question of identity. We don't sit on any laurels of any day. We offer these universal truths to anyone who feels like it speaks to them. And We're, for no, someone who's never lived a question before, yeah, like literally the, never done it, right. they don't, they, they'll see it and they'll think, oh, well, you have an absolute position because yeah. they don't know what living a question is like. No, they, they don't. Um, and, and this is what is part of the managing my own personal uh, insanity in a world that does these kinds of things completely innocently ignorant of the projections. But again, you, you said something to me once uh, that really touched me. You, you said that, um, and I'll, I'll speak to identity. You said it relative to me personally, but I'd like to reframe it for identity. Mm-hmm. Um, identity... Uh, it is uh, is not um, it, 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 it you said it's it's ahead of its time mm-hmm. and that's why it's not known very well or not accepted very well if it was a leading edge thing it would be known because um, well Eckhart Tolle is is uh, is seen as the most influential spiritual teacher on the planet yeah that alone makes him want to reach for a fairly expensive french white Uh, (laughs) i got that uh, idea actually from dan millman the martial artist and author who uh was quoted by an amazing martial artist that i had the privilege to train with named peter ralston who who is a great example of who someone way ahead of their time one of the greatest martial artists and teachers alive today who is relatively unknown so i see it as like this bell curve of the people think that the most popular, the Oprah's, the Dr. Phil's, the Deepak Chopra's, the uh, whoever's, um, uh, the Eckhart Tolle's, the ones who sell millions of books, they think, oh, well, these people must be at the very top of the game. But no, they're the most popular. And if you look at the CQ of the population and see, well, they're they're just ahead of where the average person is, that's not cutting edge. No, um, no, and that's, that's an just, unfortunate situation. Yeah, that's leading edge, not cutting edge. Yes, yes cutting yes. edge folks tend to be unknown, and and so we we know this in identity. Uh, you and I both know this. My wife Bree, of course, a beloved soulmate, and we live this every day. We know how we feel about things, but trying to get it across as universal truth with an open hand, not a closed fist of absolutism, is so unknown, especially when we combine so much passion 
in our universal truths. People don't can't make the difference. If, if someone's really passionate about their truths, they must be have a relationship to it as absolute. No, there's a way to be passionate about universal truths that you're constantly living into the question of every single truth every single day. Do you know how confident you have to be to live into the question without leaning on the truth of the day before that you had? Um, this is this is when soul the soul eye is doing human life, not the mind eye. The mind eye could never have be passionate about a universal truth without absolutizing it. The mind is too small a picture of re, capture of reality, whereas the soul, when in identities dharmas, we help you move out of the slavery to your mind eye, to the sobriety of your soul eye. I have a funny story. I've been. I was wanting to tell you. Uh, I'll try to. I'll tell as quickly as I can because I know we've been going for a while here. But um, like I said, this topic fascinates me, and I, I love talking about it. But it's it's a little embarrassing, and and I know revealing is always healthy for me. So it's a good place to talk about it. Uh, there was a, a missing frying pan in my house, and um, my beloved and I we had decided to move it from one place to another and couldn't find it like where do we move it like and she and i are both really good at hiding things from ourselves and every we'd been it's been missing for like a month or so i thought and <laughs> it's uh it doesn't i won't go into too much detail about it but it was missing it was missing we would talk about it i probably spent an hour and a half looking in different places it started i think maybe someone who house sat for me like took it home or something like where is it, it was literally making me crazy and then um Last night, it just came up again because I used a similar pan and it came up again. I was like, what? we started talking about where it could be again. And I, st I literally started being like, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe this is all a figment of my imagination. I never actually got this thing. Kind of people, like people live that, that, that philosophy. A lot of people do. Everything's a figment of my mind projection. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was literally, I mean, it was so at the end of my rope, like, where the hell is this thing? I started to think like, uh, I was literally starting to doubt my own mind, which connects mm -hmm. to what we were talking about, the constant doubt. And, mm -hmm. then I, and then I realized like, because I had this picture that it was a 14 inch saute pan and I had a 12 inch saute pan. Then I was like, wait a minute, why would I have gotten a 14 inch saute pan if I already had a 12? That doesn't really make sense. Like I wouldn't have done that because they're kind of the same. And then I realized after thinking about, and I literally went into my email and looked at the receipts where I got all of the stuff from to see if well, I had ever actually. You're hmm? a maniac. You're a oh maniac. yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I went and looked at all the receipts to see if in fact I had ever bought a 14 inch saute pan and I had not. So it turned out. Whoa. The very pan I was cooking with that we had moved from one place to another was the one I'd been looking for for weeks. And I thought I had a second one. And I'm telling you, Stace, my mind has been unraveling since last night <laughs> because my brain is like, oh, my God, I do not have an accurate picture of reality. What else have I not been getting? Sure. And that's when I see the constant doubt and curiosity on this chart it's like I dropped into like another level of like, well, maybe I don't have the grip on reality that I thought I did. And it's that, rippling that, through me. Yeah. And that's great progress for you. <laughs> for me, yes, I know. It is great progress. Uh, you, you, you're such a lovely example um, of bearing the, um, 
uh, slow motion collapse of your mind eye. (laughs) Exactly. And the slow motion rising of the dawn of your soul eye. Mm, Um, And and this, this can be crazy making. Mm. And this is, this falls in that category. I think Joseph, uh, because you, you, you can not only go through these kinds of things, but then you have critical um, uh, 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 orientation of meta about the thing that makes you crazy. You, 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 you go, all of us go in and out of fusing to our craziness, you know, mm-hmm. but to, to have exhale our craziness and go, okay, why am I crazy? What voice in me, what center in me is feeling crazy right now? It, it can really help map that changeover because your, your, your mind eye identity is draining because yeah. of your work in identity mm-hmm. and uh, your soul eye is emergent and they are battling for the moment. Um, who owns Joseph Shapiro? Yeah, and right. afterwards, like within a half hour after this discovery that the pan I'd been using was actually the pan I'd looked for because, <laughs> because literally we moved it from one place, stuck it under a bunch of other ones, and then my mind made up, oh, there's two. There's a 12 and a 14 instead of there's one. Oh, it like God. reverse bilocated or something. It like copied <laughs> and pasted in my mind. And then half hour after, I was still noticing, I look, would look at a cabinet like, oh, maybe it's in there. And I'm, and I'm like, no, we, we, we solved this riddle. Stop looking for the pan that doesn't exist. And I'm just experiencing my mind grasping for the, the sanity place of mind inus. And it was, it's just still yes. gripping. Sure. Uh, like a phantom limb or something. Oh, great metaphor! Exactly right. Oh. And, and again, I, I have to congratulate you on um, on this because it means it's progressing. It's mm-hmm. progressive. What's happening to your consciousness basis, right? Yeah, You've I've never in my entire forty-eight years being alive have spent weeks looking for something that didn't exist. Slash, I already found that that's not happened to me before. <laughs> that's a really disorienting predicament. Well. Let, let's let's move let's move let's move to a meta example of that, and I'll make go to close here. Uh-huh. Is that um, we're searching uh, for our more an identity would say we search we're searching for our most authentic version of self that involves emo, emotivity and soulfulness. We're looking for it. It's already exists. Mm. It's just covered over. So, um, in our picture of things. Uh, the seeker has to stop seeking, much like Eastern, as Zen would say, my own old, older tradition. Uh, uh, you, the only, only when the seeker stops will will that which is sought find find them in some way by grace or enlightenment, however that works in your paradigm, right? But um, this is so important: is that um, Joseph right now? I just really want to honor him, you, Joseph, because you are a living example of the challenges inherent. Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, losing a former I, uh, identity. Um, it's really interesting, identity. identity. You make a dash yes. between their identity reflects to teeth, and teeth are about eating, and eating, we're talking about oh, a it's mental- it's a grip, yeah, it's like a- No, no it's an no? eating of reality. Oh, metaphor, it's a pro- I, I identity. I'm pro- I'm uh-huh. doing this and I'm eating and swallowing and 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 spitting up when 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 I've learned this truth is dentate. no longer appropriate. Uh-huh. Right, uh-huh. dentate. Right, identity. Um, you're a beautiful living example of moving from the identity of your mind-based um, orientation to your soul-based, and this is 
crazy making and other paradigms would call you at the symptomatic um, expressive level, you could be, um, boy, get some Thorazine on this guy. On this guy. Stat, stat, get some Thorazine. Um, but you're, you're in, in identity, it's being, it is rec- you're, you're recognizable as someone moving from the mind eye to the soul eye. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, I, I thought it was a good place to share it because the, this constant doubt and curiosity, and I, even just talking about it a minute ago, I could feel the, um, being on the edge of tears because it's like this missing pan thing. It was, um, it was representative of exactly what you're saying of like, I'm, um, you know, one part of me thinks I'm losing my mind, but what's actually happening, I know is it's being sort of rewired and reordered. And, yes. um, it's really difficult because I still, like I said, I feel these echoes of, it's like an, a, a, a domain of doubt that I didn't live in. Cause I lived in plenty of yes. doubt and curiosity, but sure. this like broke, like it was like water breaking through a door and it's like, Oh, now there's an area of my mind where a whole bunch of doubt can show up that there was no doubt there, but I didn't know I didn't have any doubt there because that door was closed. It was this oh, realm so, of my mind that was yes. like, well, of course I know what freaking <laughs> frying pans I have and what I don't. And now it's like, Hmm, permanence of objects is now under doubt. Like that's new. You know, what's next? What the water's still filling that room and touching all the other things. And like, maybe I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. It's really disconcerting. Um, only to a part that needs reality to be predictable. Yes. Right. right. <laughs> Always. Yes. Yeah. So, so let, let's, let's close this up with, um, <laughs> thank you again. Mm-hmm. That was so lovely. Really, truly. Um, but if there are any people who have felt themselves marginalized or self-diagnosis, losing it, or having a disease, uh, a tumor in their brain or <laughs> al- uh, al- Alzheimer's, um, maybe not, maybe you're just, uh, being pushed to move your mind eye uh, to be a child of your soul eye mm. the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. But let's let's end with a fairly scientific, empirical, lovely truth, and that is um, you don't hear it much these days. But phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. Right? Okay. Phi- that means. Go ahead. Well, no. Phi- well, phylogeny, well, origin well, of love. Uh, no, phylogeny is um, but the metaphor that it's, this applies to. You can actually go through either door. Phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. Ontogeny expresses as phylogeny. But it's the, the, the basis of it is when you look at these stages in a human embryo um, goes through, you see gull, um, gill slits, you uh-huh. see a, ta- a tail. The um, ontogeny of the child, the fetus, is recapitulating the phylogeny of past evolutionary states oh uh-huh. you see and and the point i want to make on this um you can look at it both ways but the point here is is that all these categories let's say in, you're someone in the last category 350 to 450 when you're younger in this lifetime even if you had 450 lifetimes before you are going to be in a least evolved state as a child you just won't go into adult versions of that. You'll move through semi-evolved to more evolved until you get to cutting age re- evolved because you won't be able to buy into any of the paradigms in the other categories. 
But where everything gets equalized here is that I I went through these stages. I went through collectivism when I was in high school, and mm-hmm. and the Crusaders of my high school were the you know the Brother Rice Crusaders. Uh, mm-hmm. They were this. That was the team of our. That was the name of our team, whether it was football or or basketball. You were. I was collectivistic to a fault. I was. We we are the Crusaders against the Lions and you know all the yeah. other. It's always amazing to me how many animals are in athletics names. Uh, there's something. It's really tribal. Huh? Yeah, yeah, really yeah. tribal. Anyway, and I've gone through myself through each of these stages, and only I don't get stuck. I haven't got stuck in any of them because I've had too many lifetimes to be fooled by the appearances of something rather than their origination or ontogenetic roots. Right? Consciousness, CQ, consciousness quotient will recapitulate the stages in any one life. And this is how you can tell if you've, if you're at a point, if you're listening to these, listening to these podcasts, you might be at the point where something hasn't stuck for you. Some worldview hasn't done it all for you. And you're open to exploring. All I would like to say is that cutting edge, um, uh, uh, question based, um, uh, Emoto spiritual philosophy called identity um, might be able to address some questions you've never had been able to have been have, to have been answered, and um, you may be have you may have outgrown everything. You're not crazy. You're not in denial. Maybe you're just an elder soul. You're not better because you're an elder soul. People, all people who hear this kind of soliloquy want to be older soul. No, you don't. The yes. elder the soul you are the more you suffer in this world. Um, and that's not, not just physically suffer, but soul suffering. You, you're soul sick for so long until you finally get support for exactly what you just described, which would have been pathological uh, in, in, in many other periods. Yeah, I might be able to get a CAT scan if I told the story <laughs> to a doctor. Uh, who wants to make sure that uh, he doesn't get sued. So he's got to prescribe that uh, CAT scan to make sure you're, uh, he's off the hook, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not Hippocratically oath-wise, uh, but uh, yeah. avoid litigation, avoid litigation. Yeah, the, the, the movement from a more evolved to cutting edge evolved is, um, is a really challenging one because you're, you're leaving mainstream culturally speaking what we're calling more evolved is cutting edge evolved that's you know academia for example the the, yes the professorial the professor class and they're seen at the top of the game so when you move from uh the column three to column four to cutting edge evolved it's kind of a fall from grace because Mm -hmm. um you're the uh yeah you're misunderstood it's lonely um, it's, it's difficult. You see through a lot of, um, uh, delusion in society, but can't, um, transactionally reach people about that because yeah, it's, um, and we, we see the, the people who've always been ahead of their time, the, um, the, uh, the Beethoven's and the, uh, the Da Vinci's and, uh, who's the impressionistic guy, uh, Van Gogh. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of these people live, live very, very difficult lives, certainly the Yeshua's and the Buddha's of, of the world. Um, sure. to, to be ahead of your time, um, uh, Peter Ralston, who I mentioned before, um, it, it's not unique to you or identity. People have been ahead of their time yeah. and the paradigms Absolutely. have been ahead of their time for thousands of years. And it's never been an easy existence, um, yeah. though it's often romanticized in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. 
when you're when you're when the mainstream religion of Buddhism teaches that um, the Buddha uh, began walking upright moments after he was born, and lotus blossoms uh, grew under his feet. Um, talk about romanticized. Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable, or that Jesus, you know, uh, didn't have a, a, a spermless birth. He had a spermless birth. So I'd like to talk about the Buddha and Yeshua, um, who, in identity's opinion, um, uh, were the same soul in different incarnations. We're, we're not the only ones that hold that truth with an open hand and explore mm -hmm. it. Uh, but that's another interesting podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. How those who were ahead of their time become stultified and uh, statuized and all the living truth about them gets um, uh, solidified into stone. Uh, time is medusic that way. So looked at, uh, yeah, uh, Medusa looked at someone uh, with oh, her eyes, uh, yeah, yeah. they turned to stone. It freezes um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the living, living people who were ahead of their time are romanticized into oblivion. And if the real Jesus or the real Buddha showed up today, Buddhists and Christians would tear them apart. Literally, about the real Socrates or the real oh. Joan d'Arc, or yeah, they, they would tear them apart just to maintain their belief system. Yeah, because the living versions of those great beings would destroy their belief system. Yeah, um, because that's what they were. They, that's why they were ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you if you like this podcast and at the beginning of it, um, you said, what in hell, the relationship to the relationship to truth, what is this going to be about? <laughs> I, I hope you you found some, um, uh, uh, your feet found some applicable ground here, heartful ground. And uh, this is just one way of looking at truth. Um, it's just one slice through the pie of human consciousness. And we're glad you tuned in. And I'm happy to have a venue like this. And always, Joseph, thank you so much for this. Yeah. Thank you, Stace. Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you've made it to, I think this is 16. I don't know. I'd have to look at my list. But if, yeah, if you made it uh, this many episodes in and you have been listening in order, which you should be doing, uh, then uh, this uh, you're probably in the cutting edge uh, paradigm, a cutting edge evolved column. And um, <laughs> sorry. And congratulations, as you sometimes say. Oh, lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening, and thank you, Stace, and um, hope you'll tune in next time and when we'll be talking about, I don't know yet, but we'll, we'll definitely be talking about it. Bye for now. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time. We wish you well on your journey.